it's always been like this. Like if you if you stand next to the marginalized and the despised, you will be despised. As a sexual assault nurse, I testified for this woman and I get on the stand and all of a sudden I'm being humiliated. I'm being told things about myself that are not true. And I'm like, what's going on? Why is he treating me like a criminal? I'm a neutral party here. And I realized why? Because I stood on the side of a woman who was assaulted, who also is a woman of color. And so I realized that if we stand with the marginalized, we will be treated that way. Hello friends, welcome to Let's Give a Damn, a podcast about people who give a damn, by people who give a damn, and for people who give a damn. That's you. Thank you for joining me. Before I introduce today's amazing guest, and she is amazing, let's briefly talk about the thing that is inevitably on most of our minds and hearts. Every single one of you knows about the horrific attacks that happened at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. 50 victims, as young as three years old, and as old as 71, as far as I can tell. I don't even know the name of the white supremacist who committed these evil acts, and I hope that it stays that way. I do not want to spread his name or his fame, but I do know the name of the man who saved the day. After this white supremacist left the first mosque and entered the second mosque to continue his killing spree, Abdul Aziz Wahabzada, Remember that name, Abdul Aziz Wahabzada, threw an ATM machine at the killer, a fucking ATM machine. He then chased him out of the mosque, and I forgot to note, when he threw the ATM machine at first, it knocked the killer's rifle out of his hand. That's why he couldn't continue killing, which is amazing. He then chased him out of the mosque, continuing to throw the ATM machine at him and at his car, and eventually scared him off. Abdul Aziz, that's the name you and I should remember. Well, his name and the names of the 50 people who died, who shouldn't have died, who were in their place of worship, a place that is supposed to be safe. This past weekend, my family and I attended a vigil in Nashville. Muslims, Jews, Christians, and people that don't adhere to any faith at all gathered together to comfort our Muslim brothers and sisters, and also to recommit together to pursuing a peace-filled world. There was a local Muslim leader at the vigil that led parts of the vigil, and toward the end, she shared some ideas for how non-Muslims can help dispel the widespread fears surrounding Muslims and Islam, otherwise known as Islamophobia. She noted that Islamophobia is a billion-dollar business, and it is. All you have to do is get onto Twitter or watch the news and you will see that it is the case. And I found her ideas super helpful. And I'm glad to know that I was already doing some of them in my own life and I look forward to finding ways to implement the others. I'm not going to share all the ideas she shared with you today, but here are the two that stuck out to me. Number one, meet a Muslim. It's important for you to get to know about Islam from a Muslim. If you don't have any Muslims living around you, and I guarantee you that most of you do, but if you don't, go find your local mosque. I've been to a few mosques and they've always welcomed me with open arms. And I know that the people there, the Muslims there would be happy to meet you and help you learn more about Islam. And side note, everyone I know 
that deploys some degree of Islamophobia in their behavior or rhetoric does not have any Muslim friends, not one. And I'm not saying they don't know Muslims. I'm saying they don't have any Muslim friends. And I mean that 100% of the time. Conversely, everyone I know that embraces Muslims and has uh, Muslims in their community and as their neighbors and people that they spend time with, every single one of those has engaged Muslims. So th there's something very obvious there. I don't have to continue pointing that out. Number two, partake in local activities led by Muslims. Muslims, in my experience, are very active in their communities. So I'm sure there'll be many ways for you to get involved. And I really want to know if you end up taking the advice of this Muslim leader seriously, uh, the two that I've shared with you, I'd really love to know about budding relationships and partnerships happening among uh, the Let's Give a Damn family and our Muslim brothers and sisters as a result of this tragedy. We need to see beautiful things happen. As a result, we need to become more unified. And these are a couple ways that we can do that. Okay, onward. My guest today is Diana Ostrike. My goodness, Diana is amazing. She is a war veteran, a sexual assault nurse examiner, a justice advocate, a recovering racist, and the key relationships officer at one of my favorite organizations of all time, Preemptive Love Coalition. Preemptive Love's work stretches across Iraq, Syria, the United States, and beyond. They work together to unmake violence and create the more beautiful world that their hearts, in my heart, frankly, their hearts know is possible. They literally go wherever no one else is going. They go where no one else goes, and they're amazing. I can't wait for you to hear my chat with Diana. Are you ready? You'd better be. Here's my conversation with the wonderful Diana Ostrike. Diana Ostrike, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. It is great to be here. Thanks for spending time with me. I'm so glad we, we could have done this remotely, but I try to do very few of those because it's way better when we're sitting across the table from each other. You're in town for what? And I caught you on your last day, really you the last are. couple hours. So here. I'm in town for Preemptive Love Coalition. There was a benefit concert last night with Audrey Assad. And so we're in town and they're raising money so that we can create refuge for people in Iraq and Syria. Yeah, and Audrey, people listening will know that she was on the podcast, uh, well, by the time this comes out, two weeks before yours. So she was on the podcast yeah. last week. And if you haven't had a chance to hear her in person, like stunning. Yeah, just she's like She's next level. Out of this world. Yeah, it is pretty. That's a great way to describe it. It's like angelic, otherworldly, all those things. It's, it is. YouTube did not do it justice. Yeah. So that was your first time meeting her and hearing yes. her and all that? Yeah. yeah. She's, she's quite the amazing human being. She did... There's so much great feedback on the podcast we did because it really connected yeah. with people. We went all over the place. We talked pornography. We talked uh, her, yeah. you know, Syrian background. We talked all this, all this stuff, and it was a, it was a great, great conversation. So yeah, you're in town for that. You are leaving in. You're going to call an Uber as soon as we're finished, <laughs> and you're going to head to the airport. Sixty and minutes. Get out of here. So I'm, I'm excited that I was able to uh, catch you. And thank you for grabbing an Uber in this <laughs> downpour. Um, it is really downpouring in Nashville today. I love rain. We spent four years in the Pacific Northwest, and my favorite part was just the the drizzly rain and the overcast. The melancholiness yes, for you? Yes, loved it. 
But this is next level. This is like you can't really do much in it. Right. It's just pouring. So I was very grateful when the Uber driver, usually they drop at the end of the driveway. Okay. He pulled in all the way to the door. So very grateful you know, you're in here. Can we give a shout for that? Yeah. Like, that no, guy I was really... really happy. He drove all the way in, took your luggage out quick, made it a seamless transition out of the rain. The world so, is good, Nick. Yeah. There are lots of great it's people. proven it today. There's some uh, shitty things going on, but there are a lot of great people and a lot to give thanks for. So again, thank you for being here. And we had your, is Jeremy your boss? Can we say boss? Well, he calls us colleagues. Okay. Which is humble of, which right? is great of him. Which is just, yeah. which is just like, you know, you got, Jeremy of him. you've got a great boss when they call you a colleague. Yes. But so yeah. So your colleague, Jeremy Courtney, right. who started Preemptive, Preemptive Love. Love Coalition. Um, you guys just say Preemptive Love? Kind of shut the cut We're the supposed to say off. Preemptive Love Coalition yeah. because we're about partnerships. Yes. Not getting big, but we really think we can change the world if we all come to the table together. Yeah, and I'm so excited to dig into that more. But, you know, early on, months ago, uh, last year sometime, I chatted with Jeremy. He We we had a call from, he was in Iraq at his home. Yeah. And it was just, it was very special because I've looked up to him a ton. I love his work, just the humility and passion that he approaches with which he approaches his work, your work. It was just great to catch him in the environment, 10 p.m. his time. And it was it was when really... you get the call that says, Hey, this is Jeremy calling you from Iraq. Like, how do you not just get that little kid yeah. smile on your face that's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the special things that I love about, and we'll get into more of this later once we hear more of your story. But one of the things I love about Jeremy, about primitive love. Is that, you know, if you go on your website right now and you look at job opportunities, most of the ones that you you all have up for, you know, posted right now are four positions in Iraq. Like, you guys yeah. are there on the ground. This is not like, hey, we're going to raise a bunch of money and then we're going to, like, send it all over and, you know, whatever happens with it. Like, Jeremy and his wife and family and there's a team that are on the ground in Iraq, which is a place for the past 17, 18 years, especially since 9-11, right. has been looked at as, like, Nobody goes there. Who goes to Iraq? Like, that's a place you don't go. We only hear about it for three minutes on the news every night when something shitty happens, right? Yeah. And so he's there. They're there. And that's, I think, really special. But we're not here to talk about Jeremy. But shout out, Jeremy. You are still one of my favorite <laughs> podcast guests. Let's hear some of your story. So go back as far as you want to. But give us some context, the people, places, and things that shaped you. Um, and stop just short of... If you want, stop somewhere short of joining preemptive love. And I'll I'll interject at points. Sure. I love this question because it, it gives you the wide open range where you're like, oh my gosh. You can go anywhere you want. Like, where did it really start? But I grew up in a really small town in northern Minnesota and went to a little country Baptist church. Great people. And it really shaped. I think that was one of the biggest shapers of just growing up was church and and what I didn't realize until I got a little bit older was that a lot of how how we were taught to be loyal to God and to love God was about what we wouldn't do mm. and who we wouldn't be around and yep. that has been one of the biggest things that I see is it was pretty harmful to me as a human being and as a faith person was that I was taught what to stay away from. Yep. And that was how I proved my loyalty to God yep. was who I wouldn't talk to, what I wouldn't do, where I wouldn't go. But it leaves you with this whole nine yards of like, well, what do I do? You know, and put it in context, like 
my Danish grandmother, like they did not, she did not play cards and she did not dance and you couldn't go to movies because this was, because this was how she showed she's loyal to her faith. You know, like that sounds a little bit extreme, but it still was the legacy and the stream that a lot of us grew up in of what we wouldn't do. I have a very similar background, oddly enough. Grew up in a fundamentalist Baptist uh, background in Rochester, New York, and it was very similar. The whole upbringing was, here are the shows you don't watch, here are the movies you don't watch, here's music right. you don't listen to, here are all the things you don't do. And so you walk around just on eggshells, always wondering if you're pissing God off. Right. And I think setting somebody up for that's how you love God is who you won't love, who you won't sit by. It, it, it's really this half thing. And so growing up out of that, I ended up joining the military. Um, I'm a third generation army veteran, so I'm not special at all. My grandma had like three of her grandkids serving at the same time. So I couldn't even get a little props from grandma because me, my cousins, my mom, my dad, my uncle, my grandpas. Wow. Um, it was, it was just the family culture. And in that little church, I also learned that to serve my country was ultimately to serve God and to take a life for my country was ultimately to take life for God. Mm. Now, you're, you're shaped by these things without really knowing them and without really even giving consent to that because you're a kid and these are the people that you love and, you know, Harold the deacon gives you juicy fruit gum, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> like to get you through the yeah, church it's service. It's family, right? Um, and I love those people. And then when I went to basic training, they wrote me. They wrote me letters. They prayed for me. And it wasn't until I found myself deployed to Iraq in 2003, right when it was the preemptive strike. So the U.S. didn't declare war. They just did a huge troop surge where they just threw 100,000 troops over there pretty much overnight. And, and I was one of those. So I was 23 years old. I was almost done with like my six year enlistment and I got a call on Valentine's Day. Perfect. So I was a single girl <laughs> in college, pre-cell phone, like hoping for, you know, the phone call you get on Valentine's, I was not expecting to hear. Pack your bags. We can't tell you where you're going or when you'll be back. Write a will. And that was it. And so for a college student, that, that was the beginning of life getting real. And at 23, like everybody thinks you're an adult, but at 39, I know I was a baby. Mm. I was just carrying with me beliefs and things that I had been handed, but I really never had any experience of what did that mean and who is the person on the other end of this equation. And so I get deployed, and as we are convoying over into the active war zone, we have this meeting that says tomorrow morning we're going to roll out in the active war zone, and it's an enemy tactic to push little Iraqi kids in front of American convoys in order to slow down the convoy, and then they attack the trucks at the rear. So I hope you understand your duty to keep the convoy rolling at all costs tomorrow. If you're not able to do your duty, stand up now and identify yourself, the sergeant said. Wow. And in that minute, like, everything went quiet. Like, I could hear my heartbeat. Like, all of a sudden, everything that made sense didn't make sense. And I remember just, like, my heart beating hard. And I, and I was like, I don't know. Like, mm. I'm wearing the uniform. I believe in this. My church believes in this. My family believes in this. I believe in this. But I just kept feeling this 
this voice that just said, was pushing back mm. on this that just said no. And so it's happening tomorrow morning, go back to my tent, and I just wrestle all night long. And I keep saying, like, God, I have to. Like, I have to take a life to save a life. And I'm like, we believe in this. Like, I've been taught this my whole life. Mm. And I just kept hearing this voice say, but I love them, Diana. I love them, too. And long- so just to be just to be clear for everybody listening, what you were wrestling through was what your sergeant wasn't saying overtly was you're gonna run these kids over, right? Like it is your duty, is your duty to run these to kids run these over. kids over to make sure this convoy doesn't stop. Yeah, and wild. And what you wouldn't know if you weren't a soldier is that this is a direct order. Like there is, if you do not do this in time, like at any time, but especially in a time of war. Like you court martialed or court martialed, you would go to prison, and that would be the best scenario. At the worst, like soldiers who are not loyal, they don't make it out. Like friendly fire is not a thing from the movies. (laughs) It is not a safe place if you will not be loyal. And so I just remember being like, God, I can't run over a kid, Um, but I'm supposed to, and I believe that. Like this lines up with everything that I had been taught. And so by the next day, I just knew, I didn't know anything except for that I knew that at the end of the day, I was a citizen of the kingdom of heaven first. And if he says, like, we're life people and not death people, Mm -hmm. then to give away my life was okay, but I would never take a life. So this put me in tension with my loyalties, tension with my uniform, tension with my my faith, my family, every, every place that I belonged, this would make me other. Like, I would lose belonging because of this choice. So there's lots of other things that happened during the war, but at the end of it, I, I felt like I laid down my weapon and took the bullets out, and I just knew that I would give my life away for an Iraqi, for an American. I would step in front of any bullet, but I would never take a life. Like, between me and God, I, like that, that was nothing that I, that I felt like I could do. And so... I, I found the posture of peace on the battlefield of the Iraq war. Which is so, wild. So I came back mm-hmm. a peacemaker, mm-hmm. but like undercover brother because like I would lose belonging in all the places that I held dear. And I had never heard a faith person talk about the cross of Christ and nonviolence. Like literally never heard that broached. Like I had to wrestle it out um, by myself mm. in the middle of war. And so it almost was simple in Iraq, how to, how to live this out. But when I came home, I had no idea what to do. Remember, like I was always told what not to do, but I'm like, well, I don't know what to do. Um, and so this is like 2004. There's not a lot of like PTSD stuff going on. Like we're just bringing people home. There's not a lot of awareness of like, what do you do with a soldier who's been in the war for a year? You just send them home after three days and send them back to their life. Like this was kind of what had happened. And so I bumped into preemptive love online and they were talking about unmaking violence and healing hearts across enemy lines and creating new stories between two communities that have experienced a lot of violence. And that was like the first time I heard anybody put words to what the, what I felt like God had asked me to take as the posture of the war. Like I knew that he told me to lay down my weapon, but I didn't have words for what, Hmm. how to say that. Or like how I wanted to live the rest of my life. 
until I met preemptive love and they're like, guess what? You know, like we can choose to confront fear with acts of love. We can actually unmake that same violence by creating new stories. And so I just raised my hand. I was like, that's me. I want to be first in line. I want my heart to be healed from this violence that I was part of, that I saw. And so they were the first people I mean, and this was like 2007, so like the war was still going. Um, but they were the first people to really talk about not just turning the page, saying this is just a really sad story, but we can actually create new stories. What is it about the environment you grew up in that was so like enamored with war and violence and, and why? Because I still struggle with this today because I grew up in it. Never understood it. Even when I was in it, I was like, this is weird. Like how people are like getting off on these ideas of like violence and being a part of this, like, you know, yeah. this killing machine called, you yeah. know, the. I'm sure there are good aspects. I, I know, I shouldn't say I'm sure because I might piss some people off. I know there are good aspects of like, we need a military to protect us and all of that. But there's a lot of needless and senseless acts of violence and killing going on, right? And so I never understood that. But What's so odd to me is that Christians would ever, that, that would ever be a part of like right. our identity, right? Because yes, there are, there's some weird shit to like wrestle through in the Bible, right? There are wars, there's battles, yeah. there's killing. Like I get it. When people come like, this Bible is weird. I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> but there are way Jesus, who we claim to follow, you and me, not everybody listening, but you and me. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed right? are the meek, blessed are the, like all yeah. these things. And yet Christians, even to this day, if you look at people supporting our president and the current administration and some of the weird stuff that's going on oh. there, they're doing it in the name of like, Christianity. Some would say the most militant pro-war people is the American church. Like it's not even just average Americans. Like churches tend to be the most um, pro, the most enamored, the most militant about how they view the military. And so I, I wrote a book because, you know, sometimes you have to figure things out. And so, so I wrote out my whole story in a book. And the most revealing, one of the most revealing things, and that was I had really thought that this, this romanticism and this hero worship in the military really came from my family. Mm. And in actually writing it out, I found that it wasn't my family. It was my church. Mm. So my church was the place that we had the flag. My church was the place that every Veterans Day they had my both my parents stand up and be honored. And I remember like, you know, feeling as a little five-year-old like, wow, look at my parents. They did what most, you know, mo everybody loves America, but my parents, like, look what they did. And so I realized that um, the church is the place that I was, I was most shaped towards putting my country first more than the posture of Jesus. Mm. Like, I think nationalism was the bedrock. Oh, yeah. And I didn't know that. But the church was a place that we celebrated Veterans Day. We did this. We did that. We did Memorial this. Memorial Day, all the like, stuff. Those it was just days. there yep. all the time. And I can't, and I grew up not really knowing what the church calendar was. So people are like, you know, Lent, you know this. I'm like, no. No. <laughs> no, I, but I do know about Memorial Day yeah. and uh, Flag Day and, uh, you know, Veterans Wild. Day. And so I realized, and that's been a really tough thing to think that the place that I was most bought into and really still am is the place that covered up 
the peacemaker posture of Jesus. Like if we say that Jesus is like God's like biggest revelation of himself, like people got him so wrong that his last ditch effort was, okay, one last effort, I'm going to send you my son. So you'll actually get my character. There's not one act of violence that Jesus did. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when he saw it, even state sanctioned violence, he interrupted it. Like how the person of Jesus and the nonviolence, the literalness that he said, like, no, no, like you can give away your life and you're not going to lose because love never fails. Like how serving my country was taught to me in my sanctuary, my worship space, instead of giving away my life. Like that is still the hardest thing that I that I struggle with. But I also think that's the most hopeful place. Like, if we can call that out, and if we can say, you know, like, stop talking about him if you don't want to live like him. Like, I think there's hope, but there's not hope without truth. And the place that there's the greatest tensions, like, if I go anywhere and say the word nonviolence, like, don't say it in a church. And I'm saying that as a soldier, so they can't really dismiss me and say, oh, you're a hippy-dippy, you don't know what it's like to serve. I'm a combat which is, veteran. Which is what I get called all the time. But right? I, I don't have the military background. Yeah. Right? But yeah. like there's veterans and there's combat veterans. Yeah. And I hold that. Yeah. And so they love that I served my country. And then when I say I'm a soldier and I'm a peacemaker, that's my truest identity. Then all of a sudden I'm distrustful. Then all of a sudden they're like not quite yep. sure if they can trust me. And that's all right because like there is supposed to be tension. And I think as long as we're going to pick up violence, like we are poisoning the water that we're drinking yeah, for the oppressor and the oppressed. Yeah. Like it can't be. And we're, and we're seeing this. And right now today there's 195 countries in the world and we have troops deployed to 153. Yeah. We're obsessed with this shit. I tell people all the time, we are obsessed with, we like, I mean, look at the movies we put out. Look at the, you know right? what I'm saying? Like all the stuff. We are a nation obsessed with violence. We with give guns. our, we give our two-year-olds guns. You know, I had somebody close by because I've never owned a gun, never will. I don't want to. And people have called me a bad husband and father. Right. Because they've said, well, what if someone comes into your house? And I'm like, I don't value my life that much. Will my family be sad if I, my life is taken? Horribly sad. Will I be super sad if someone comes in and takes life of them very sad but i i can't even get over that hump of like well because i don't want you to hurt me i'm gonna hurt you the ultimate hurt kill you because ultimately so this is this is what's so crazy so back in the desert when i feel like i had that like big night where i was like god like don't ask this of me yeah i will lose i can't even imagine i will lose everything i will lose my life i will lose you know, all of these things. And I, and I call it my desert baptism because I was baptized when I was 10 years old. I don't know what my loyalties and allegiances were that was going under the water. Like, you did my, it the right thing like, to do back like then. Yeah. my want to like mouth off to my parents or steal a cookie or something. I don't know. But at 23, Jesus asked for every single loyalty and allegiance I had, every identity that wasn't him, he asked for it to go under the water and for me to give it away. And I think that's what baptism is. So I'm like, no, no, no. Like, we can't have these equal identities. 
And if I'm willing to kill for my country, and if, will, and if I'm willing to die for my country, what's left for God? And, and if you do believe in, like, an afterlife and that eternal life is a thing, then, like, how could we ever take away someone's chance to have restoration, to have a story that continues with God? Like, that's, like, the ultimate judgment and if God's a parent, a mother and a father, then like, oh, sure as hell never. Like, don't, like a yeah. fierce mama bear and a fierce daddy. Like, no, like, I fear of God means I will never say that I can love someone enough to judge them. Like, we're all at the table together. Yeah. Like, we're guests at this table. Yeah. And I'm not a parent, and I, and I do not love people. <laughs> like, I don't even love the people that I love very well, mm. but I want to. Mm. So when I was in Iraq and I actually saw the person that I'd been told was my enemy, like God just, he gave me an ability to reimagine the person I've seen as my enemy as like my brother and as my sister. And it changed everything. Pretty soon, I'm like, oh my gosh, you're scared, I'm scared. We want the best for our kids. We want the best for each other. So I laid out my weapon. And then when I come back to my community, I'm like, oh, all the people that I was told like, you can't be by them. To prove your love to God, you can't be by this community and that community and that community. All of a sudden, I'm showing up because presence doesn't require agreement. Um, I took my kids to the vigil for Orlando, the Orlando shooting, because mm. the LGBT community said like, hey, everybody, will you come and will you mourn with us? Mm. And taking the kids, and I realized that all the years that I didn't show up for this community, it wasn't about how much I love that community yet. It was how much I was concerned with being judged by my own community. Like, I didn't want my people to pull my Jesus card. That's why I wasn't standing next to people. And, like, that broke me. Mm. And so there we are at this, sh at this vigil, and we're hearing stories of people, and, and we're lighting candles, and I'm just, like, feeling that this is what I was missing. This separation where we say, like, I won't stand by you, and I won't stand by you, like, that isn't the family of God. That is just straight-up exclusion, and it's, it's searching for something by exclusion, and it just makes us off the hook that we don't actually have to do anything. You know what I mean? Like, we yeah. don't have to show up or embody yeah. any of this. And my kids are leaving out a different story. Yeah. And it's showing them who we get to be when we show up for each other. So I feel like the whole posture of, like, living this stuff just changed, not there, but mostly here, how I show up with people. So I don't know what the percentage is, but some people that are listening to this are, they're both American and they're, they identify as Christian. How do you, especially in our current, iteration of the church in America, you know, the one where just yesterday our president was signing Bibles at the tornado relief center at some church. Like he was signing Bibles and handing them to people like he wrote the damn thing. Like this is a different thing, right? This is a different, we're seeing, I've always talked about Trump, not as he's like, I don't even know where you stand politically. I, I could probably guess, but what he did was give lots of people permission to be what they wanted to be, but couldn't felt like they could be under another regime, in other words, right. right? And so he gave them permission to be, to say and think out loud things that are just horrific in the name yeah. of the he, church. He and, gave them permission to, to put themselves first. And so yeah. our legacy is of putting ourselves first. Our legacy is one of 
oppression and violence. Our culture says, well, that's smart. You need some new land? Leave England. Come over here. Take it. Like, you're smart. You're valiant. Yeah. This is this is like good character. And so if we started that way, if we started by like oppression and violence, and we actually have turned that into a virtue, like you're smart if you're willing to kill someone to protect yourself. Yep. Um, that's actually good character. So we've taken this thing that all across history, like violence was a been, vice. Yeah. Like religious people opted out. They said like, we're not going to take lives or give our lives for this place because we're part of something different. Like our citizenship like never ends, you know, yeah. like we're not for this. We're for something bigger. And so I think that the current administration, like our culture has always put themselves first. And I think even our Christian culture was probably like 90% American. Yeah. Safe, security, yeah. win, put myself first. And I think that this administration just gave people like the finish line to say like, it's not an understated value to put myself first. It's actually the best value to put myself first and screw everybody else. Which is so like... like Put, put my country first, put myself first, put my rights first. And if you don't have the same rights as I do, unconcerned. So, and I'm 100% on board with all that. So how do you, how do you stay in? Like, why not, yeah. why not just leave it? Why not be done with it? Because it seems like you're, I don't, this is the first time we've met and we're just getting to know each other, but it seems like in some way, just from seeing you on social media, like you've chosen to stay in it. Versus leaving it. I don't know. Maybe correct me if I'm wrong. What do you mean by it? In it, like in the church, in the ecosystem and not saying, not giving it the middle finger and saying, this is horrible. I'm leaving it. Like many of my friends have, and I don't blame them. Like many of my friends grew up identifying as Christians and literally in the last three or four years have said, fuck it. Like I'm out. This is horrible. This is not what I signed up for, in other words. And they've left it for something else or for nothing. They kind of, there's a void there now. Yeah. And they're figuring out what to do with that. It seems like I've stayed in and I have my reasons for staying in. Yeah. But why have you, like, why not leave it? This is not cool, some of the stuff that's right? happening. I think most every other day I lament and I grieve because I feel like we hold great responsibility for what happens to the most vulnerable among us. And the thing that keeps me in is I have this friend one of my Supreme 12 teammates, Erin, who lives in Iraq, and she's like, Diana, there has always been this super small amount of people across all time who have chosen to give away their lives mm. instead of put themselves first. And she's like, that's the real people, and that's, that's the real posture, and that's what we're about. It's okay if, no, if everybody else decides they're going to put themselves first in the name of their religion. She's like, but we know. Like, there will be a small stream from history and presently that will say, no, I'm going to put my neighbor first. And she's like, and that is life. Mm. And we can continue that even if we see on all sides, it's the opposite of that. And so what really gives me hope is that, oh, it's always been like this. Like if you, if you stand next to the marginalized and the despised, you will be despised. As a sexual assault nurse, I testified for this woman And I get on the stand, and all of a sudden, I'm being humiliated. I'm being told things about myself that are not true. And I'm like, what's going on? Why is he treating me like a criminal? 
I'm a neutral party here. I like, and I realized why? Because I stood on the side of a woman who was assaulted, who also is a woman of color. And so I realized that if we stand with the marginalized, we will be treated that way. So as I see this thing, I'm like, if people keep telling me I shouldn't be loving those people, then I'm confident that I'm doing something right. If the big majority agrees and is giving me accolades, then like I'm going to be suspicious. Got to worry about that. I got to yeah. worry about that. Like, look who's to your right and who's to your left. Because giving I, a damn and doing good is not popular. Right. I just going to be honest here. I gave a speech in high school. Mm. You have to do speech class. Like for the death penalty, arguing for it. For it. And today, like, I am ashamed Mm. and humbled and embarrassed that, like, that was my mind view. So what gives me hope is, if you think of anything you think of that you're like, I can't believe somebody thinks that, I probably thought that because that was what was handed to me. And so in my head, I'm like, I wasn't a bad person that was just what was given to me. And I hadn't been given a better invitation. So my, my like hope and why I stay in is that there's probably people like me who just haven't been given a better invitation. They haven't been told you can reimagine the person you've been told to fear and actually have a friendship. They've never, they've never been told that you don't have to be tribal to exist, that there's abundance and not scarcity, and that love will trump fear every single time. And so if there's hope for me that like 18-year-old me and 23-year-old me, if there's possibility for me to change, then I totally believe that everybody else, the people that I have the least amount of hope in, that there is still so much possibility, that we're not the sum total of our beliefs. Yeah. Like there's something so much better in us. And even if people disagree, there's something in us that is wired to love and, and to choose life. Like, our heartbeat is for that. Even if people are like, oh, man, I don't agree with that at all. But there's something about what you're saying that is making my heart beat faster. So I think we're wired for something better. Yeah. We've just been given such a poor narrative. We've yeah. been given false ultimatums that just aren't true. And so I think if people keep giving a damn, if they keep speaking up, if they keep showing love... I think we're innately drawn to something that's better and something that's beautiful. And I'm going to go down dying for that. I'm going to go down trying for that. Yeah. Um, Because there's always been the people who say one thing. And then there's been the other people who are like, no, I don't think so. I think think it's better. And I want to make a better story. And I think now is the time where we're either going to grab onto a better story or we're going we're gonna to be sitting ducks for the next line, the next lie. And we're, we're going to be so ready for fear mm. if we don't choose something that's greater. That's beautiful. There's so much to pick apart there. I, I want to go so many different places. Most people in their, in, in their social media profiles, in like the bio part, they brag or maybe not just brag, they simply give all the positive things like what they do for a career and, you know, I'm a husband or I'm a wife, I got kids, like whatever. You do some of that in your bio, but you also have something that I thought was interesting and I'm excited to figure out where you're going with it. One of the things you identify as is a recovering racist, which is not something that people usually put in their bio because no one, even though I believe this, every single one of us, we either 
consciously or unconsciously act out in a racist way on a regular basis. I believe that. I've caught myself, and it's horrible. But nobody's talking about that. Nobody wants to talk about that. So why do you identify as that? Why is that a way that you identify yourself? What do you mean by it? What's going on there? Yeah, so I'm part of a multiracial family. I'm a white mom of an African-American boy. And when we brought him home from Ethiopia, clueless parents, as most parents are, but we had no idea that we were bringing him into a country that is built on systems of racism and violence because that wasn't something that I experienced out of my privilege. I didn't know it existed until all of a sudden I have this beautiful brown boy and now I'm scared for him to put a hoodie on. Now I won't let him go to the bathroom by himself. I'm watching mothers of brown boys grieve and I know there's no difference between us. Like the next headline could be me. Like Trevon Martin's mother, I, mm. I like pray to God I will never have to walk what she's walked in all humility. I'm like, we, we live in a system of racism and so we're all breathing the air. And so we can either say that we want better and we want to recover we want to do the work to realize that we live in a country that has systems of racism and we can see it and we want to unmake that. Mm. Or we keep taking each article we hear and evaluating whether or not I think there's a racial thing in there. Right. So if I can say that I'm a mother of a brown boy and I will die on that hill for him and I'm a recovering racist, it's because I'm admitting that this is, this is the air we breathe and this is the water we drink. And if we can name it, we can do something about it. But if we can't say the name, then we aren't going to make much progress. And all of our kids are depending on us to make some progress. And I hope that if I say that, then somebody else can just have a little bit more leeway to say, you know what? Yeah, like we all are. Um, there's, not one, there's not one among us who can live and be born into this culture and into our history, into our present, and somehow not be part of the whole. We are part of the whole, and we can do something about it if we're willing to be humble enough to say yes. Will you ever get to change that in this lifetime? Do you get to say recovered racist at any point, or do you think it's something that you and we all will have to continue to identify and realize that it's just an ongoing struggle that we get. I think as long as we wake up in the morning, we are going to have this DNA in us that wants to put ourselves first, mm. that wants somebody else to be underneath of us, that wants my accomplishments to be really individual. You know, I did this, not, you know, nobody else helped me. Like, these are my accomplishments. And so I will always be recovering um, because that's what keeps you at the table. And when you talk to people who have addiction, they're... That's where I was going to go like, next, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, like, they're the most humble people on the planet. Like, everybody likes to tell you their, like, rah-rah story when they've accomplished it. But addiction people are no. the most beautifully, yeah. brutally honest. They're just like, oh, yeah, like, that's me, and I'm all these things, too. So yeah. I can say I'm a recovering racist, and I'm a mother who loves my son. I can be this and that, like one doesn't ax out the other. And I think that's what keeps us doing the work. That's what keeps us listening. That's what keeps us listening to communities of color saying like, I hear you, 
I see you. I will follow you. Because we can never be done. Like, as long as we're breathing, we're absolutely, like, I disagree with half the things I do by lunch. Yeah. So, like, Same it, here. so if, like, that's just me, like, I, I obviously am just going to, like, not ever say I'm making it because that takes me out of the game of, like, doing the work. Ah, couldn't have said that better myself. Yeah, and I was going to go, I'm glad you went with the whole addiction thing because I know several people that, you know, are alcoholics. And even after they go through the 12 steps and they've done AA and they do all the stuff, they will never not call themselves an alcoholic, even if they go 50 years without drinking. That's a part of who they are and it fosters humility. Because if you can say, I beat alcoholism or I beat drug addiction or I beat sex addiction or whatever, and it's like not there anymore, then you it's easier to uh, kind of gloat, right? It's easier right? to say like, I beat that. Look at me, look at me yeah. go. Where if you, but if you still identify as a, as a recovering alcoholic, a recovering sex addict, a recovering racist, you have to wake up every morning and just put on that cloak of humility and say, we're all just making it. I can't right. lord anything over anyone today because we're all just making it. You know, so that's that's really beautiful. Let's go back to uh, preemptive love, though. I want you to talk about some of the work that you do. So you are your title is chief relationship officer at again one of my favorite organizations. The name says it all. Uh, you talked, in fact, you said the word like a preemptive strike, right? Yeah. Uh, that's that's a battle term. If you go look up the definition of preemptive, it's all gonna be battle stuff. It's all who who got to preemptively strike yeah. on the other, right? And you all are changing that conversation. You're co-opting, hijacking that word and saying, we're going to preemptively love. Right. One of my favorite things that Jeremy says is love anyway. Love anyway. He said it many times in our conversation months ago. Because if you don't get up and decide, so this is one of the things, like, I decided, like, how I was going to show up to a war that I had no control over. Hmm. I didn't know if I would die by lunch, but the freedom that I decided I would wake up in the day and I was going to show up knowing what I would and wouldn't do. Mm. Like, that's a freedom. And I think choosing to love anyway is a commitment that says, this is how I'm going to show up. It's not like I'm going to trust someone who doesn't already trust me. I'm going to move towards somebody who I don't know if they have my good or not, but I've decided who I am going to be in this world. And I think that's how the story changes. And and it's costly. It's not always, it's not going to go well. Mm. <laughs> like, I've got as many horrible stories as I do um, cool stories of love anyway, but it takes a commitment to decide who you're going to be. And then there's this freedom because you don't have to decide whether someone is worthy every time you meet somebody. I mean, you're not like having to size a situation up. You've already decided what you're going to do. And I think, I think it makes the more beautiful world that, that we ache for. And we think it's possible. We just don't know how to do it. Mm. If you look on social media and the website and everything, like it's not super clear at the onset, like what preemptive love does. So what do you all do and what do you do in particular? So we're a global movement of peacemakers that confront fear with acts of love Mm. in order to unmake violence. And what that looks like. Can you say that again? Just like take it slow. (laughs) You want me to take a real? Take it slow. That's wonderful. Say that again. We are a global movement of peacemakers who confront fear with acts of love in order to unmake violence in the world. Mm. And what that looks like is we show up on the front lines of conflict in Iraq and Syria where the bullets and bombs are still flying with emergency food, water, and medical care. 
and it looks like ISIS survivors and refugees reclaiming their lives from war by creating businesses that give them dignity instead of dependence. Mm. So we do emergency relief, and then we do empowerment, because we really believe that people who have been victimized by violence, they are the answer to their story. Like, they have Mm. everything they need. They don't need a handout. They just need a hand up. So helping them figure out, like, what can you do? What are your skills? And then we just come alongside of them and give them business grants. So one one family before ISIS, they were sheep herders. They're like, we know sheep. Like, this is in our blood to care for sheep. And then restoring back to them their identity as sheep makers, like, that changes the world for them, even though they're still refugees, even though they're still living in a tent waiting to go home. So that's what we do in Iraq and Syria. But we also think that if we can unmake violence in Iraq and Syria, then we can heal the divides here in our own neighborhoods and in our own communities where there's divisions, where there's violence, where churches and families are fighting over politics and over who America really should be. Like we think that we can be peacemakers here too. So what do you get to do on a daily basis? What so like my business card says peacemaker and key relationships officer, mm. because at the end of the day, like this is what this is what I think I want to leave this life with is being a peacemaker. So I live here in the States. And so I get to connect with people and bring the stories that are happening in refugee camps in Iraq and Syria. And then I get to bring them to the to the kitchen table to people where they live and tell them the stories and let them know that they are the ones who are helping my friends, Zaroka, build her business in a refugee camp in Iraq. So I bring the stories here, yeah. and I let people know that they are the ones who are actually on making violence. And if they can do it over there, then actually they can do it as a mom. They can do it with their kids. They can do it in their neighborhoods. Like, we are the menders of our communities, and we don't have to wait for anybody else. Like, preemptive love means that we are jumping out in our neighborhoods and to our friends and in our churches and our communities saying like, we want to rebuild what's broken. So that's kind of my job is I get to bring the stories here and get to connect with people and show them how they like their seat at the, at the table, the peacemaking table, we're incomplete without each other. This is sort of a left, a quick left turn, but this is very front lines work, right? I mean, literally the, the front lines. Have you, has preemptive love ever lost any, team members to violence. I mean, like you said, there's bullets, you know. I mean, when ISIS were there, like we, our team wasn't even three hours from where ISIS was sitting. And one night um, we had the closest call we've ever had. So um, we had some of our teammates in our team, they were bringing this big semi truck full of food on this road and anyways, um, they, they got permissions from, from the military, the Iraqi military. They knew they were supposed to be there. And then all of a sudden, like, ISIS is, like, coming down the track. And we didn't know if our teammates were going were gonna to make it through the night. Like, they jumped out of the truck and had to bury, strip down and bury themselves in the sand and pray. Holy and, shit. like, that's, they're sitting there. And then the ISIS group, like, gathers up their little trucks. And they can hear the ISIS guys talking on their phone, talking about having, hey, meet me at the rally point of this semi-truck that's sitting in the desert. And so it was just the most traumatizing, like night to know that we might lose people 
who are choosing to love anyways. Mm. And my same team members, like that has stuck with them. Mm. Like it has not been easy for them. And yet the next day, like we knew people were starving and they needed this food. And my same teammate who almost died that night is like, no, I'm, I'm going to go. And we're like, no, no, <laughs> you know? And he's like, no, like people need food. And they barely survived. And yet this idea of love was so compelling to them that they would face, they would face not coming home to their families because this is who they chose to be, that they would love anyway. Mm. And that was the scariest night of, of our whole team's mm. life. That's, <laughs> that's wild. That's wild. That's movie worthy, but that's just insane. This has been wonderful. Again, I, I could talk. We didn't, you kind of glossed over you being a sexual assault nurse. And so like, there's so much more we could talk about, but we'll go through round two at some point. But I want to land the plane with this question. Someday, many years from now, you're going to die. For some odd reason, in, in this hypothetical scenario, I've been asked to give your eulogy. So everybody, your whole preemptive love team, your family, your friends, everybody's there to celebrate and mourn your life. And I've been asked to speak words of, you know, kind of mourning and celebration over your life and the work that you did and everything. In a couple sentences, what do you hope that I would say on that day? I would hope that my friends at that eulogy and my enemies could agree with what you would say about me. That's the one thing. Like, mm. I want to be the same person to for the everybody. people who love me and the people who want no good for me. But if I could have you say anything, it would be that Diana showed up scared and she loved anyway. And she she did it with with joy. Like she played and laughed and and cried and was hurt and wounded and then still showed up to do it again. Hmm. That's wonderful. Well, you're on the trajectory for that happening. Thank you so much for joining us. You've you've had, you know, just an incredible story that you've shared with us, soldier to peacemaker, and you're doing that in such a tangible way. So thank you for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much, Nick. Dear friends, thanks so much for listening in today. Here's my challenge for you this week. Seek to unmake violence by loving anyway. Do hard things. And lastly, if you don't know any Muslims, make sure to meet one this week. And if you don't know how to do that, some people, it's not a Muslim thing, some people just have a hard time meeting new people. If you don't know how to do that, hit me up and I'll do my best to help you. Hit me up on social media or hello at nicklapara.com. I will do my best to help you. Please Follow Diana on Instagram at Diana O'Strike. That's at D-I-A-N-A-O-E-S-T-R-E-I-C-H. Or you can just go into the show notes and you can click on the link that I'm going to have there. And make sure you're following Preemptive Love at Preemptive Love on all social media platforms. You're going to love the work that they're doing. To find out more information about this podcast conversation and Let's Give a Damn in general, go to letsgiveadam.com. If you love what we're doing on this show, please tell a friend, tell two friends, tell five friends, leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or consider giving us a few dollars each month to support the production and execution of this show by visiting patreon.com slash let's give a damn. This podcast was edited and produced by the amazing Chad Snavely. The music 
is by the equally amazing propaganda. Can't wait to spend time with you again next week. Peace.